And as they are headed back that way, let's turn, if you would, in the Bible to 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 1 through 15, we'll look at today. If you need a pew Bible, there should be one at the end of the pew. Uh, 2 Samuel found after Joshua and Judges in the Old Testament before uh, First and Second Kings. Last week, uh, if you were with us or had a chance to maybe listen to the message online, if you weren't here, we uh, looked, dove into the dynamics of David's sin with Bathsheba. Uh, followed up by David's uh, sin against Uriah, his murderous actions against Uriah, her husband. And we approached the passage, if you recall, in, with uh, several mindsets uh, before us in terms of why we should seek to have godly living in our lives and why we should seek to avoid sin. So why should we pursue godly living? Why should we seek to avoid sin? said a couple of things. Uh, one, because God's following and pursuing God's commandments is always right and good. Uh, even if it doesn't feel that way to us or we don't think that way, it doesn't seem that way to us cognitively, it's always right and good. That's one reason. Uh, there's always some kind of consequences to sin, even if it's just something we think or just something we say. Maybe it's not an action we take. There's always some kind of, of con- uh, consequence, always in an effect. As believers, we enjoy the status of being in Christ. Romans 8.1 tells us there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ, so we, we, we will not be separated from God in an eternal way, but there are, there are effects to, to us uh, falling short of God's glory in this life. So those are a couple of reasons. A, a third one would be th- this, that really seeking after godly living and avoiding sin is the best pathway to you and I having full satisfaction, having fullness of joy in God. To be able to experience him and know him, that's actually what he designed for us to do. There's joy, there's satisfaction, there's delight in him. And turning away from him is a, is a barrier to, uh, to being able to, to enjoy that. And then lastly, of course, we said, I think even more definitively, definitively last week, that we seek godly living and seek to avoid sin because Jesus has come and bought us with a price. He's laid down his life sacrificially for you and me. He's done that most heroic of heroic things. And so we're rightly motivated to say, okay, God has done this great loving thing for me. I want to respond in love and obedience to him. With uh, that mindset as an example, then we are in our in our background. We looked at the example, I should say, of, of King David. And we said we want to kind of look over his shoulder and see how does he stumble in this area of temptation? How, how does he fall? And what can we take away from that to help us with the play by play in our lives to to chart a better path? And not just, you know, we said we said this very important point. It's not just that maybe maybe our particular area of temptation is along the same lines as his with this lustful sort of sexual temptation or or trying to cover up some sort of sin in a murderous action, maybe. Maybe that's the direction of us, but, but, but it might be other areas. It might be that area of greed, materialism. It might be that uh, area of uh, struggling with worry and anxiety. It might be that eating disorder. It might be that substance addiction. It might be that propensity to gossip or to racism or whatever. Whatever that thing is that we kind of feel a pull towards and we almost feel like we can't resist it. We said, boy, let's, let's take a look at what we can learn from David. The fact is, however... That even if we try to learn that lesson the best we can, and some of us have been walking that path for a while, some of us are kind of new to that path of seeking to walk with God, but we, we probably figured out we're not going to do it perfectly. We are going to stumble. We are going to fall short of God's glory. And so our chapter today helps us to look at 
What do we do with that? What is the solution to the fact of realizing I have not done what is pleasing and glorifying to God? In fact, I've done the exact opposite and I know it or I need to come to know it. What is that process? And so we're going to look at at the the mercy of God and how he confronts us. And we'll see these uh, these three things in these verses. See if you can can pick them out as we're reading through one, the mercifulness of God to confront David. A severe mercy, but a mercy nonetheless. What we can learn from Nathan, this prophet that's sent to speak to David about how we interact with one another, where we might need to be involved in in speaking to another about issues that, that, that we are observing in their life. And then lastly, what do we do with it? As I said, how does what does it look like to have faith and genuine repentance flowing out of seeing our brokenness and seeing our sin? Fantastic passage for us. Lots of application. We'll only be able to touch on a few points, but read along with me. Second uh, Samuel chapter 12. You read silently. I'll read aloud. We'll look at just verses one through 15. And the Lord sent Nathan to David and he came to him and said to him, there were two men in a certain city, one rich, the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds. But the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. He brought it up, and it grew up with him, with his children. It used to eat morsel and drink a cup and lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. And David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Verse 7. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house and your master's wives and your arms. And I gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I'd add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You've struck down your eye of the Hittite with the sword taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you've despised me, taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbors, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the sun. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. And then Nathan went to his house. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. We thank you for this, your word, that was used instrumentally in the life of King David, 
years ago, centuries ago, but has great power to be used in each one of our lives today for us to see and understand the beauty of your loving confronting of us, the blessing of being able to see that we need you, that your grace is available to us, and Lord, to seek to live changed lives in response to your grace. So, Father, we pray that you would help us in that regard to grow in our relationship with you through these words. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, confronting people isn't easy, is it? Not easy either to be confronted for most of us. I may have shared the story before about the uh, pastor who uh, wandered into his uh, wife's area of the closet one day looking for something else. And uh, he, he found sitting in the closet a carton of eggs with five eggs in it and $300 cash sitting beside it. Uh, he was sort of perplexed at finding this in his wife's area of the closet. And so he, he went and you know, asked her about it. He said, honey, what's, what's the deal? And the pastor's wife uh, said, well, honey, here, here's kind of the system I've got. Whenever you preach a bad sermon, a sermon that just I don't think was really, really very good, I, I put an egg in the carton. Well, the pastor had been preaching for years. I thought, this is, this is a pretty good deal. That's, that's good. And he, he started to walk away, and then he thought a little bit more and turned back around. He said, honey, well, what, what's with the $300 cash? Now she looked down at the floor a little bit sheepishly and kind of kicked around and said, well, when I fill up a carton, I sell the eggs. <laughs> not easy to be confronted, right? And not easy to confront. We see in these verses, we recognize this main idea. You can follow along the worship guide. In fact, I feel like I've said this last few weeks again, a broken record, but... If you don't normally follow in a worship guide, again, you might want to do that today in the notes section because there are, I think, some excellent bullet points, especially at the end of the message that I think will be really good takeaways for us. But this main idea you'll find there, God's merciful. And so loving confrontation is a kindness from his hands. And this is a tough one for us when we think about it in our culture, isn't it? Because uh, what we have done in all times, in all places, people, because of our prideful nature, we don't like to have our weaknesses and our problems exposed. I don't like that. Uh, no, nobody enjoys that. But we have, in our time, taken our identity, who we are as people, and we firmly rooted it in midair. We firmly rooted it in this concept of self-esteem. It's all over. It's probably all over the walls here. I love the folks that run this uh, school. But, you know, we, what we've said is we're going to root self in self. And then hope that there'd be some good result from that. And, and the result is that we don't have a lot of security in who we are as people. And so we're very averse to anybody coming in and speaking even good, helpful things that we need to hear. The Lord or other people that, that love us. That, that's kind of where we are. We, we've even kind of moved as a culture, if you follow what's happening culturally, to where we, uh, we move from wanting to have and, and make sure we have the right to say what we can say or what we should say respectfully in our culture to saying we have the right to not hear something that we would be offended by. That's kind of how our, our culture is moving with this. So we've got that on the one hand. On the other hand, 
We do have a legitimate problem with confrontation. If you've ever posted something on social media that you were like, "Ooh, I'm glad they got the delete button. I'm glad I can take that back. And I hope nobody saw that one. Or if you're like me and you have learned about 10 years ago to have an email setting where your emails don't automatically go out, where you have to hit the button to send them out, you know, to do that for a good reason, because you've sent that email that you didn't really mean to send or should have taken another look at. We know that we say things that are hurtful. Uh, they call it cyberbullying, I guess, that we speak in a way that's overly aggressive. And we never would just say to somebody to their face and we feel like we can hide behind the digital shield and, and do that. So confrontation is an interesting thing in our world today. And for that reason, it's refreshing, really, isn't it? To look at these verses and see how God perfectly, in truth and in love, confronts us. Gets into our life for our good and for our benefit and speaks to us what we need to hear. And then to also see how we can hopefully, first removing that big old log in, in our eyes before we try to remove the speck in our brother's, Maybe be used in one another's life for iron sharpening iron. We see that with Nathan. And then lastly, to look at what does it mean to respond in faith and repentance? Not, not, you know, not just on Sunday morning. I hope when we go through the call to confession time and the silent, uh, silent moment here. For some of us, it's sort of the only time of the week that we really sit there and kind of, okay, God, it's you and me. And there's these other people around. But where have I been in my relationship with you? You know, we we hopefully see it in that point, but hopefully throughout the whole course of our week, learning to grow in genuine repentance, genuine confession, actually delighting to have God show us those areas where we need growth, because that's where we see the beauty of what Jesus has done for us. See his love more powerfully. We're going to take a look at those three things in the time we've got today and and probably need to begin first before we look at those specific applications at, at what's really happening in this uh, in this account. It's interesting to look at the beginning of the verse. We know from the end of chapter 12, well, verse 1 tells us that God sent Nathan. So this is something God is doing. God's carrying out. We know from the end of chapter 11 that God knows what happened. Okay, in case we didn't know that the divine one, the living God, knows everything that goes on in the universe. There's just a reminder here that he knows. He knows what's in my heart. He knows what I do. He knows what's in your heart and in your life. He, he's aware. And so with that awareness, he sends Nathan. And then he, he speaks to, uh, Nathan comes to speak. And we know that the servant back in chapter 11 had already said to David, Hey, isn't, isn't, Uriah, married, or isn't Uriah married to Bathsheba? Isn't she a married woman when he was asking for her to come in? And then Joab has already kind of sent word back, David's general, when uh, Uriah was basically sent to be killed and said, hey, I, I get what's going on here. OK, don't blame me that we lost this battle. So I get what's going on here. I got a little dirt on you. Uh, I'm aware. So a couple people have already kind of nudged that way. But Nathan is the first one to come and, and, and take him on. And, and it's really fascinating to think about Nathan's job, isn't it? Uh, I don't know when he says you are the man. If he says that, you know, in my Bible, it has an exclamation point. I don't know if he sends that boldly, says that boldly and loudly, or he can barely get those words off of his shaking lips. Because you remember David, David's talking to David is like talking to a, a Navy SEAL who's also the president of the United States. He could just kill you at any moment, just his, his, his skills, 
and that also happens to have all the power in the in the area that they're they're dwelling. So so his approach, you can kind of get why he takes the approach he does of a parable. And I hope that everybody got that he's he's telling a parable to try to illustrate. Same thing Jesus did. You know, you think about David. Well, how is he? How did he not get what he had done and how it was wrong and why did this guy have to confront him? Jesus went talked in parables on and on throughout the Gospels. That says something about us and something about the people in Jesus' day. We're hard-hearted, hard-headed, and sometimes folks have to do an end-around on us, even the Lord, to kind of get the message through, whether it's the world, the flesh, or the devil that's tempting us. You see the parable, right? You get it? It says that this guy has all these sheep of his own. Remember, David had wives and concubines. He wasn't supposed to, but he had. So he had plenty of outlet, if you would, if you want to put it that way. And, and yet... He, he has a guest arrive, which is just a, the parable's term for temptation coming in. That can come from the world around us. That can come from our own heart. That can come from the evil one. So he's got this guest come. And the parable walks through. You know, it's, it's sort of like, uh, remember that movie, What About Bob? People remember that from the, from the 80s. And where Bob, just the psychologist, tries to get away to his vacation place. And he's trying to treat this guy, Bob. And Bob keeps showing up at the window. And then he's at the door. And then he's dropping in from the ceiling. He's, the temptation's kind of like that, isn't it? It's a guest that shows up. And, and uh, we have to figure out how to deal with it when, it when it comes. So we see this playing out. And then it goes on and tells us. And it gets, it gets pretty direct down in verses 9 and on, on down. It talks about the consequences that David is going to to face. And then I thought this was specifically interesting in verse 9. It says, why have you despised the word of the Lord? You know, sometimes it's helpful for me in my attempts to resist sin and walk in godliness to just think about it in a new way, right? And maybe have a fresh way of looking at it. And I don't know if you think about this, but a lot of us in this room would say that we love this book. That we believe this book is God's word come down. This is a precious thing that's been passed along that speaks to us revelation that we wouldn't have otherwise. And, and maybe to help us to think about the same way Nathan speaks to David is that, you know, when we turn and pursue sin, really what we're doing is we're despising this. We're saying, I, I, I don't want this. I don't value this. David's saying he doesn't value the word of God when he wanders into his sin. It goes on and it says, you know, the sword will not depart from him. And then especially in verse 10, it says, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah. So it's interesting, the contrast here, it's almost like when Jesus says you cannot love both God and mammon. You know, you can't love both God and money. So you really got to make a choice. What's going to be priority in your life? And all of us are going to struggle with that, but you got to make some kind of decision, which is going to be priority. Same kind of thing for David. You, you made a choice between me and this uh, desire that you had. And, and he plays that out a little bit more as he describes all the consequences, which are bitter just to read. Makes me think of Hebrews chapter 12. And if you want to turn there, you can, or you can just listen as I read it. Hebrews chapter 12 is a reminder that uh, actually, you know, consequences are tough, but consequences can help us. They, they, as a believer, they actually are, can be a blessing to us. So these are bitter pills for David to swallow all the implications of his action. But look at verse five. If you turn there to Hebrews 12, it says this. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? So the speech that speaks to you as sons, valued persons, cherished persons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. The Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives it goes on and describes and just says hey 
if you have a parent and that parent doesn't care enough to actually discipline and say, you know, I'm going to spank your hand if you try to reach out and grab the stove or, hey, you're going to be in trouble. Go to your room if I see you running across the street without looking. Now, that's not a loving parent. A loving parent creates some kind of discipline, some kind of structure to help their child. And, and God's going to do that with us as well, even if it's difficult and painful for us. So that lays kind of the, the pattern of what's happened with, with David in the picture uh, in, in brief. Let's take a look at some application points that we can hopefully uh, pull out of that. The first one is this. Because God is merciful, we have the privilege of him confronting us. It's actually a privilege and a blessing that God cares enough to speak into our lives and seek to turn us around. You know, he could have just struck David down. He could have just taken him out. We read about it at the last part of, of those verses. Let me get back there to uh, first or Second Samuel chapter 12. If you want to look there with me at the very last couple of verses that I read, I think it was 14 and and 15 it says this it says the Lord has put away your sin and you shall not die. So God chose to be merciful to him and he's really being merciful to David too, because David up to this point is still kind of stuck. He hasn't come to that place of saying, you know, I really am not honoring and seeking to walk with you, God, in this specific situation. He hasn't come to that place of owning it and confessing it and being freed in that way. Uh, Psalm 32 speaks about this, and it's a description of how David was probably feeling at this time. Psalm 32 talks about the mercy of God and then also the, the pain, the burden of being under, under our sin. It says this. It says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. So, hey, it's a blessing to be forgiven, it said. But how do we get there? When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as in the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I'll confess my transgression to the Lord. You forgave the iniquity of my sin. So what David's experiencing here, and you and I can experience throughout the week or when we fall in major ways like David did or in minor ways is to say, you know, that groaning, that weight that we feel when we know we haven't honored the Lord with some particular area of our life and it's heavy upon us and we haven't really come and said, God, give me your grace afresh. I acknowledge it's wrong. We, we can enjoy his grace. We can have that burden lifted and it's a privilege. Actually, it's a severe mercy that God speaks into our lives that way. Uh, we feel that groaning, don't we? When we uh, take that one drink that leads to eight others. When we buy that dress that leads to a spending spree that we know we can't possibly afford. When we make that gossipy comment, that one little statement, and then we get involved in the conversation. And by the time we're done, we've shredded somebody else's life and reputation in order to make ourselves feel a little bit better. Young people, when we've followed our peers, not just one step or two steps away from what our parents have told us to do, but three or four steps, just so we have their approval. Whatever that thing is that makes us feel good for a moment, we know that feeling then when it sets in and we realize, wow, I know what I've, I've done, but I can't quite get 
that off of me, that burden. It's a privilege that God confronts us and points out our need for him. Second thing we see in these verses is that because God's merciful, we can actually be used as the body of Christ in one another's lives to confront where that's warranted. We just talked about this actually in the membership class that we we had this last uh, couple of weeks, a great group of folks in there. Two passages from Matthew are really helpful here. Matthew 18 speaks about the, the process we can be involved in. It says this in verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go to him and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother over. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Hard, hard words, tough words. But the whole point is that a person would be able to come into the light, see what they've done that's been painful or hurtful. Now, we've got to put this together in my mind always with Matthew chapter 7. And if we find ourselves being the... The great confronter at Cross Creek Church, <laughs> always confronting other people, but never being confronted. We might uh, we might realize that there's a, a problem here. And that's where Matthew chapter seven comes in. Verses three to five it says, why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye? But don't notice the log that's in your own eye. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye. Then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brothers. Okay, that's a reminder that usually maybe not in the same area that we're dealing with somebody else with. But we've got logs in our own eyes and those need to be removed. It's a call to humility. It's fascinating, though, of course, we sometimes forget this in our society that seeks to pass judgment on nothing. The passage does say then you can help your brother out and you can help remove that that speck. So we've got an opportunity as a body of Christ uh, where there are significant issues that we're concerned about. Proverbs 26, uh, 27, 6 says this. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Right. We've all we like to have people praise us. We love to have people say good stuff about us. It is profuse. Those kisses. But actually, friends are faithful to speak hard things to us. Sometimes as well, part of being a believer, part of walking in step with Christ is hearing that. Uh, I, I remember when uh, Patience and I were in our dating years, and I readily confess, and I'm sure have from up up here before, uh, definitely prior to my relationship with Christ, and even sadly a, a, a number of months after coming to faith in Christ, uh, in my high school years, the way I was interacting with the ladies, we'll just say, was not a positive way. My behavior with uh, with them in dating relationships. And so I came to begin uh, dating patients, and we, praise God, by his mercy, we were able to, to chart a, a better path, you know, probably much more largely due to her obedience and faithfulness to the Lord than mine, but it, it was going on a better better path. And we got to that point where we were a long-distance relationship. I was in St. Louis for uh, my undergraduate years, and she was down here in, in uh, near Jasper where, where she lived. And I would come down to visit. And when I would, would visit, it was we kept the long-distance relationship going. The first couple times I came down, I had a good buddy, group of Christian buddies at, at the college campus I was at. And the first couple times I would come down, I would stay at her house. Nothing specific happened that we really needed to uh, confess while we were staying together at her house. Her parents were there and so forth. 
But my friends at some point came and spoke to me. They kind of gathered that this was happening. My friends up in St. Louis and they said, you know, Chris, that's a, you know, I, I gather nothing's happened, but that's a dangerous place to put yourself in. You know, y'all, y'all love one another. Y'all are close, building a relationship. That's just a spot where you could, could stumble. And the other thing is other people that are seeing you all and know that you represent Christ, they're probably seeing that in they probably shouldn't assume certain things are going on but they might from that now it was you know i guess you could say in the whole scheme of life that's a maybe a relatively small thing but it, it struck me and I, when they first told me about it and spoke to me i i you know i brushed them back i wasn't ready to receive that because i felt like i wasn't doing anything wrong but they were they were loving friends they cared enough to speak to me about something that that i needed to to hear and we need folks like that in our life. If we don't have folks like that, we need to go find some that will lovingly and graciously be a vehicle for, uh, for helping us to come into repentance, helping us to come into God's grace and mercy. Last thing we see in these verses is this. I'm looking at my watch because I've got to be at that service by 1115 in Calera. <laughs> so we're going to wrap it up quick. You guys have never seen the sermon finish so fast. All right. The last point is this, and perhaps the most important one, really, from from all that uh, that we'll say today. So I'm going to go through it quickly, but I also want us to to uh, grab hold of it. Psalm 51. Turn there, even if you haven't turned to some of the other passages I've mentioned. Psalm 51. If you're unfamiliar with this passage, it's a great one to get familiar with. Because if you're like me and you stumble in sin regularly in big ways and small Nice to have a passage of scripture to go to that can help walk you through restoration. That kind of process we do each week, call to confession, silent confession time, and then an assurance of pardon. Psalm 51. In my Bible, perhaps in yours, it actually has a heading in it that says it's a Psalm of David when Nathan the prophet came to him after he'd gone to Bathsheba. Now, I don't know if he wrote this that night after those verses we just read earlier. I don't know if he wrote it a month later, whenever, but it's it's related to that incident. So it's pertinent for sure. And just read with me a little bit. I'll, I'll read aloud. You'll read along silently with me here. He says this. He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly and cleanse me from my sin. And then listen to what he's, he does. He, he, he owns it doesn't dodge it. He owns it. He says, for I know my transgression, my sins ever before you against you and you only have I sinned. Does that mean he doesn't realize he's destroyed other people's lives or he's blowing that off? No. The problem is a lot of times we're more concerned about the worldly consequences than we are current concerned about the fact that we've damaged our relationship with God. He knows first and foremost, it's with God that he's fallen out of standing against you and you only have I sinned on those evil in your sight. Uh, and he goes on, he says, I was brought forth in, in, in iniquity and sin did my mother conceive me. So he's saying, look, this is at the core of who I am, not just external actions that I take from time to time or an occasional bad word. I say this is uh, this is at the core of who I am. Verse seven, purge me with hyssop. I'll be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than the snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed. That's that's sounding like that Psalm 32 we read a minute ago. Those bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. And then he goes on. He wants to live in newness of life. Create me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit within me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. 
And then he even goes on in verse 13, says, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. He said, I'm going to be a beggar telling other beggars where to find bread. I've messed up big time. And I hope you recognize that from me standing up here, from the other people leading and shepherding in our church. Uh, I, I like one of our elders likes to say that all his sins are court documented, you know, <laughs> and I think that's his way of saying um, I know where I stand and I'm not trying to speak into other people's lives from any place other than my own brokenness and need for the gospel and for grace. Twelve, uh, twelve uh, points we might take for this, and it comes from a blog by Jared Wilson. And boy, folks, um, these are really really helpful for us they would be really helpful for us in our friendships in our marriage relationships in our family relationships where we probably hurt each other's feelings and struggle sometimes with actually repenting actually seeking forgiveness uh they're just really useful and useful in our relationship with god i thought these were spot on so look look at these in your worship guide if you would starting with number one it says you know what does this look like we see it in psalm 51 we name our sin as sin. We don't spin it or excuse it. And further, we demonstrate godly sorrow, which is to say a grief chiefly about the sin itself, not just a grief about being caught or having to deal with the consequences. Whew. That's a hard one right in itself. Second thing, we actually confessed before we were caught or the circumstantial, circumstantial consequences of our sin caught up with us, us that may or may not be the case it wasn't the case for david he had to have somebody come and confront him so two and three kind of go hand in hand or three if found out we confess immediately or very soon and we come clean rather than having the full truth pulled from us real repentance is typically accompanied by transparency verse four we have a willingness and eagerness to make amends we saw that with david he's like this in the parable he's like they got he's got to fix the situation as best he can Verse or number five, I should say, we are patient with those we've hurt or victimized, spending as much time as required listening to them without jumping to defend ourselves. Number six, we're patient with those we've hurt or victimized as they process their hurt. And we don't pressure or guilt them into forgiving us. That's an easy one. And we're like, hey, I've dealt with this. So you ought to deal with it. You know, I know patience and I've dealt with that. I, I, I'm always ready to move, move on from something when I've messed up. You know, <laughs> what's taking so long for you? Uh, if we really get that we've hurt somebody, we won't be pushing them ahead. Number seven, we're willing to confess our sin even in the face of serious consequences, including undergoing church discipline, maybe having to go to jail or having a spouse leave us. We might not. We don't want those things to perhaps to happen, but we're we're uh, willing to, uh, to to face those. And we may grieve the consequences of our sin, but we do not bristle under them or resent them. We understand sometimes our sin causes great damage to others, is not healed in the short term or perhaps ever. And you can read on to the last ones. Verse uh, number 12 says this. We are humble and we are teachable. A beautiful passage, I hope, that we see here in Second Samuel 11 and 12, really, that we're looking at today as we close and that is this beautiful picture that we have a God who's actually gracious enough to speak into our lives. Uh, he's not going to leave us right where we are. If, if that's our program that we're on spiritually, we think, leave me alone and I'm just going to attach you, God, to me. God's actually got a whole other plan for us, and it's a better plan. Because he wants to get invasive with that surgery. He wants to kind of work to get that cancer out where it is deeply. And it's, it's, it's no fun, no fun. 
but it's ultimately good. It's ultimately for our health. He's a beautiful physician in that way. Uh, even if that confrontation is a little difficult, even if he's going to use other people maybe to confront us, ultimately that it would lead us to genuine faith and sincere repentance like we've seen described here. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we ask that you would continue to show us a severe mercy and be pleased, perhaps if there's uh, those in this room today that have maybe never come to a place of recognizing their need for your grace, recognizing Christ met that need, and through genuine faith and repentance, uh, owning that and receiving what Jesus has done and recognizing uh, what we deserve without Christ, I pray that you would work that work of salvation and that you would fan flame into flame that work of us growing in that mercy and growing in faith and repentance, uh, even as we struggle and wrestle in this life with our sinful nature. Help us in that regard, we pray. Show us your mercy in Jesus' name. Amen.